Hello and welcome to the 11th episode of the Keeper Cut podcast, a podcast from the Pitcherless Podcast Network. This is Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. We are very excited to have some more data to talk about. Last week, we were analyzing like three games. Now we're analyzing like eight. So (laughs) it's basically real baseball now, right? Those are all numbers we can count on for sure. Yes, pretty much however you're doing to this point is how you're going to finish the season. So congratulations to you league champions out there. Now it's just a matter of waiting for the next few months to pass (laughs) while all of the numbers we've already seen continue to play out exactly like they have. No, that's very, very, very far from the truth. We're still looking at very small samples. If you start to think about what data we have right now, The first statistics to really stabilize are usually plate discipline stats. Those require about 50 plate appearances, 60 plate appearances, something like that. We're not there yet. StatCast data that people really like to look at right now, usually about 50 batted ball events before those are super reliable. We are not even close to that for anybody. So we're still at the point in the season where we're jumping to some early conclusions, trying to find things like max exit velocities changes in swing rates, things that you can look at and go, okay, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I don't need as large a sample to start making some bets. And that'll help you start to figure out what changes you could make, what you shouldn't, who should you drop, who should you be waiting on. And so we're going to talk a little bit about all of that stuff through this episode. We're going to dive back into some of the names we've looked at in earlier episodes just to get a sense of, hey, how are they doing? How do we feel about some of the decisions we've made? We're going to take a look at some would you drops. I've got a set of questions I'm going to ask Pete. Would you drop this guy to add that guy? We'll see, you know, are we ready to react in some of these cases to the small sample sizes? And we're also going to take a look at some little owned, low cost auto new players, guys who are both inexpensive or, or barely rostered or sometimes both that might be worth taking a look at. There are some guys out there that are worth picking up. So that's my kind of guys. Yeah, you were you were short on cash before the auction even started. So now (laughs) you're really playing in the deep end of the pool. Yeah, so I mean, I'm I'm looking at at the notes and I'm seeing some names that I've added and I'm thinking, all right, all right, maybe I've got a a hang of this hot new thing here. But then I look at the scoreboard and uh, that is not the case. No, it's early still, (laughs) and uh, yeah, you came in. It's always hard when you take over a team late. Right, and, and it's not just an auto new thing. It's in in anything where you've got a dynasty team, a keeper team, anything where you've where most of the team is drafted and put together before you show up. You're stuck with guys you don't really want. You haven't really built the roster you want to build. It takes a little bit of time to adjust to that. Not to mention the fact that you're trying to figure out like a new scoring system and all that stuff too. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll take all the excuses I can get, and I'll just tack on. I mean, I have James Paxton, Eli Jimenez, and and Anthony Rendon, so. I mean, it's it's just kind of a, a tough draw so far. Yeah, it's been a it's been a weird season, I think. For I, I feel like a lot of managers I talk to have dodged injuries entirely, and then a lot I've talked to are like, my entire roster is hurt, <laughs> and it, it seems like it's been more bunched than ever. I feel like on my teams, I you know, when I think about players I was really high on over the last like couple years, not just this year, especially in Auto New where. I've built so much of my rosters over the last couple of years. Dominic Smith, Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo, and Michael Conforto are all guys I've been at different times pretty high on. Mm-hmm. And so they are all over my rosters and they're all healthy, but the Mets have played like two games. <laughs> the Mets, like they missed their opening weekend series because of the COVID outbreak with the Nationals. They've had multiple weather postponements they got another what like Degrom has now not pitched the last two days because yep. they can't get their games in which you know he was finally gonna get a start at course and you're like his offense it's a start of course against like Chichi Gonzalez right like he is gonna get runs they're gonna finally there's no way around it they're going to put up runs for him and it's like it snowed it's so, <laughs> nope not gonna happen nothing Degrom can do there's no way for him to get runs. Well, I mean, tack on to that, you know, speaking of the COVID outbreaks last week, Chad, I was telling you about how many Astros I have and how I'm so excited because my Astros are playing so oh, well. Man. I'm in a, my deep, my deepest league. We only start nine hitters. Three of them are Altuve, Bregman and Jordan Alvarez. So, man, I'm rolling out, you know, Colin Moran, Adam Frazier. It's not only Pirates, but those two came to mind. <laughs> so it's been a, it's been a You've tough moved on. You're like, you know what? 
Astros didn't work out. Yeah. I'm going to try all pirates. That's a very desperate move, but yes, that is where I'm at. At first, I thought maybe it was just going to be former Astros. You're like, all right, my Astros are all hurt. So like, I'll go get Moran, maybe Josh Reddick, now that he's with the Diamondbacks in theory. You can just go pick up former Astros. Sure, Springer. Although Springer's not playing either. So Yeah, he would actually fit in as an Astro right now. So That's right. He'd be perfect for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that situation with the Astros... I've, we have no information on that either, do we? They all got I put on the COVID been, IL, but that's all we know. I've been checking almost like hourly at this point. I'm following all of the the beat the beat guys and, and gals for you know the athletic and and everyone on Twitter, and I can't I can't find any information. Brian McTaggart, I think, was the first one to report it. He often is with that team, right? And I've just been refreshing his Twitter feed and and haven't gotten anything. So the one thing is. They said that all the guys have received at least their first vaccine and that they hope this will be a short term situation. But like, obviously, you hope that. So I, I have no idea. No one knows. I don't even know if those players know. I, what I, I just want to know, like, even what the baseline is here, right? Like, there's a huge difference between contact tracing because somebody that somebody knows tested positive and now they're contact tracing and they're taking a couple days and they could be cleared any second now right or like Altuve is actually sick mm-hmm. and those other guys are getting sick or also tested positive like we, we just have no idea when i say Altuve is sick i don't that's not i'm not speculating i'm not guessing i don't have any information i'm just saying like this could range from guys being sick and out for a couple weeks while they get healthy and get positive tests and then having lingering effects Right. You look at, you know, the, the Mankatas and the Meadows from last year and you wonder what this could be if someone's actually sick. And it also could be nothing and they could be back tomorrow. <laughs> and so you're really in a, a weird spot with a team where you've got multiple of these guys, even a team where you've got one of these guys, like you can't plan for it well. You put them on the IL, you replace them. But like think about my team that in the league you and I are both in where I have Eloy. And I've got Tatis, right? And Tatis is back. Great. But like Eloy went down. I made the decision to move him to an IL spot instead of dropping him because I'm hoping I'll get him back at some point. But I had to plan around that. I know like if I need to make a trade to get an outfielder, I can figure that out. There, But you can do that when you know a guy is out three months or four months. And if a guy is going to be out for just 10 days... You can also plan around that, which is like, I'm just going to weather the storm. I'm not going to do anything crazy. I'm not going to make any aggressive trades. I'm just going to sort of roll with this. I feel like I'm just in a total limbo on the team where I've got any of these Astros guys because like it could be a month and it could be a a couple days. Well, it's it's brutal in in weekly leagues, but I think it's also brutal in daily where I find myself, if you've got multiple of these guys, Dusty Baker said they're not traveling to Seattle with the team. Is now that's obviously because I would assume if they traveled with the team, they could get the team infected. But does that mean that they could travel later and meet with the team and then play that weekend? And even if you're thinking, well, what does that matter in a daily league? If they if they travel to Seattle on Sunday, then get them in your lineup on Sunday. Well, this is also one of the first deadlines. Correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, but I believe this is is this the Super Two deadline or whatever it is where you can now call up prospects. So I'm I'm looking to stash Alex Kirilov, but I can't devote a bench spot to Alex Kirilov because I'm using up all my roster space on Colin Moran, on Adam Frazier, on Eduardo Escobar in order to fill in for these Astros. So it really affects everything, the unknown element of these COVID stints. That's right. You are stuck in a situation right now where like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a roster, a keeper league I'm in where... I drafted Nolan Jones in a prospect draft last year. I promoted him. He's using up a bench spot for me right now. I can't IL him. He's just sitting on my bench. I'm just waiting for waiting for him to get the call, which I think he will at some point. But as soon as you get one of those, now, if you've also got a couple of injured players and you have a couple of these COVID cases and you don't have that many IL spots, it just it piles up and it can happen really quickly. And it's, again... If you're in that situation and one of your injured guys is Eloy, maybe you cut him. Maybe you decide, forget it. I can't wait this out. I need, like, my team's in too much trouble now. That's probably more true in redraft than a keeper league. Keeper league, (laughs) Eloy's value is still there long term. But if it's someone who you don't know if they're going to be gone in a week or a month or whatever, you just wait. 
there's nothing else you can do. So you just wait. Right. So that's what I'm doing with all my Astros. I'm just waiting. It's all you can do. And it's a really bad year for this because there were so many juicy guys to stash. Like where this is happening to me, I stashed Carrasco and mm-hmm. Sale. And like, I don't want to drop those guys, but here we are. Yeah. So let's dive into some of the guys that we have talked about in the past that we want to sort of revisit. I'm going to start with some pitchers, and I'm going to start with the first one because I mean, this is this is just on me. I don't know how else to put it. I I was I, I wouldn't say I was all in on Patrick Corbin. I just thought his, his velocity was coming back in the spring. He's a guy who's been talented and durable at times in the past. Like I, it just seemed like the price was so low, and it was such a great opportunity to buy in on a guy who has ace upside. I don't think I saw the floor being exactly where it turns out the floor is. I mean, that was, that was brutal, just absolutely brutal. I mean, I think, and I'm not totally sure of this, but I believe that his start is the single worst start (laughs) in from an auto new pitcher that I've ever seen. Wow. So in auto new, because of the way the scoring works in Fangraph's points leagues in particular, your bad starts like that usually like even you give up, you know, seven, eight runs, it usually happens over four innings. And so you pile up some innings along the way and you get some strikeouts along the way and all this stuff. And it can be bad, but it doesn't kill you. His start was negative 53 points. Negative 53 points. Now, just to give you an example of this, if you look over his nine previous starts, Dating back, including most of last year when he had all those issues, he had some bad starts. He has a five-point start. He has a negative two-point start. But like negative 53, just insane over two innings, how how bad that is. He had the one strikeout, which is the only positive thing that happened. He had all those hits. And the Nats just sort of left him out there. Like, I don't know. I mean, you, you look at like Zach Plesak. Right. Zach Plesak also had a bad start a couple days ago. He got lit up by the White Sox in a game where he, he dodged a bullet because no one's going to talk about how badly Zach Plesak got lit up because Carlos Rodon threw a no hitter and almost threw a perfect game. But his bad start in terms of points was negative 25. It was literally half as bad. And, and a big part of that is Cleveland did not leave him out there to just get lit up for two innings. He got two thirds of an inning. It was not happening. They got him out of there. And the Nats were just like, good luck. <laughs> Have fun out there, Patrick. And man, it got ugly. Yeah, it was it was brutal. From looking at the numbers, I mean, as of right now, and, and it's only a little over six innings pitch total, but he's thrown his sinker and his four-seamer more than his slider. And we all know Patrick Corbin is, you know, the slider guy. That's that's his bread and butter. Once he started using that as his single dominant pitch, that's when he really took off. And I wonder if that's because he knows the slider's not nearly as effective if he doesn't have his fastball going. And so he's just going to keep throwing fastballs until he finds it and guys are clubbing it to death. That's at least what I mean. I'm projecting here. I, I, I haven't seen any quotes like that from him, but he, he knows he needs that fastball. He acknowledged that, that, that he just, he did not have it last year. So is he just saying, all right, I'm, I'm getting into these giant holes to start these games. So I might as well just keep throwing my fastball to see if something clicks and it's just not happening. In which case, if I own him in fantasy, I mean, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing with that. Unfortunately, I don't get a lot right, but this one is, I have zero shares of Patrick Corbin this year, and I'm very fortunate to be in that situation. Yeah, I've got a couple, and I don't know. I Well, one thing I'm going to do is I'm going to stop using him. Uh, he will not be in my lineup anytime soon. And I, I'm debating whether or not I want to give him one more start. And, you know, the, the upside's still there. I think as a, as a counterpoint to him, guy we haven't talked about quite as much, but Marco Gonzalez has been super steady for a couple years, was absolutely brutal in his first couple starts. And it looked like his last start against Baltimore was going to go the same way. Just got off to a really rough first inning, gave up, I think, gave up a home run or gave up a couple runs in the first inning and then settled in and threw four shutout innings and, you know, getting his normal, like a few strikeouts, very limited walks. Like he started to look more like himself again. And so I'm sort of glad I've been sitting on him. I'm another guy who I'm like, I'm going to give him another start. I, I think he's going to just sort of find it. 
I'm hearing a lot of that with Corey Kluber, right? Kluber's a guy who's looked pretty bad, but has also thrown some impressive pitches. Like he still clearly has his stuff. He just can't tap into it very often. He's also a guy who has struggled with slow starts most of his career. And like as a Cleveland fan, I can't tell you how many times I thought, oh man, I hope he's not done. And it turned out he was totally fine. And so there are some guys out there like that who have had rough starts who I'm just going to sort of sit on and wait and see and try not to use them. If I, especially in something like Auto New, where I've got the depth to have pitchers that I don't use on my roster. But I don't know. I, I'd like to do that with Corbin, but I'm going to, I don't know. If I need that roster spot or I need that cap space, it's probably time to move on. Sure. Especially the cap space, right? Because I imagine even after last year, he's a, he's probably still a reasonably expensive pitcher, at least not new. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing with him is he's, he's costing, you know, seven, eight bucks, not a ton, maybe as much okay. as like 12 or 13. I think I can double check, but it's enough that at an $8 player, you still clear four bucks. And when you clear those four bucks, let's see his average, actually his average salary is $14, 1450. Yeah, no so way. yeah, you can clear 750. If you're paying him that much, you can clear a lot of money. And all it's going to take is for him to have one decent start and somebody else will pick him up and clear the rest of that cap penalty for you. So yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm probably going to have to move on. That's sad. It is. It is. I, I want him to be good. He's, he's It's not like he's old. He should still be, you know, I guess towards the end of his prime. But yeah, let's switch from that to a, I'm going to call this a joint victory lap. Because when we were setting our lineup for the Pitcher List Podcast Network League this week, we debated which pitchers to use. And we're like, you know what? This guy's got two starts this week. He looked pretty good. Let's take a shot on him. And Casey Mize is making us look like geniuses right now. Uh, So he is. I actually put in my notes, if you actually rolled this dude out there against Houston, then like, wow, nice job. And we did. We, we did. did. That was a gutsy move. Now, I watched that game, and I have to say, and this is why the eye test is so dangerous, he really didn't look that great. Like, like he, it, it, I didn't watch that game thinking like, wow, this guy's dominating this lineup. Certainly not to the tune where you look at his final line, and you see seven innings, you know, three hits, two walks, whatever it was. So I, I never felt like, you know, oh, man, this is here it is. Casey Mize is, is breaking out. But there there was a lot of good news. I mean, first of all, there was only two walks. And if I remember correctly, both of those were in the first inning. And then he just like locked in. The velo also was really good. He capped out around 97.6 miles an hour, which is definitely significantly up from where he was at last year. There were seven hard hit balls off of him. He was pitching mostly with a huge lead. So, I mean, for him, you would think this would be a struggle going into this game. But for most pitchers, you get a huge lead, you just start throwing strikes, and you know it, it looks like the Astros were just hitting them at the defense. Uh, so I, I do think there was a little bit of luck there, especially when you consider, I believe he only had six swinging strikes. So there's he has a lot left to prove, but when you just take a few steps back and you look at a player of his pedigree having an outing like this against an offense that good, just take the win. I'll take that. So, yes, the velo is up. That's a really good sign. Those walks, you, he not, not only were the first inning, he walked two of the first three guys he faced. He walked Altuve to lead off the game. Brantley flew out, and then he walked Bregman on, fi- on five pitches. Brantley hit the first pitch, by the way, for the out. So his first 11 pitches, he threw eight balls and walked two guys, and Brantley hit a fly ball in the meantime. Then Jordan Alvarez swung at the second pitch and lined out, and then he struck out Correa to end the inning. And ended up, like you said, I mean, his line as a whole, seven innings, four hits, those two walks, he didn't walk another batter the next six innings, really the next six and two thirds innings. And he had five strikeouts, which isn't a ton, but it'll do. Uh, And that is, as you said, it's a tough lineup. And we we talked at the beginning of the podcast about all these Astros who are sick. That happened after. So this lineup he faced that he shut down, Altuve, Brantley, Bregman, Alvarez, Correa, Gurriel, Tucker straw and Maldonado right now their last two guys are not very good hitters that is just the reality of that lineup before that Altuve Brantley Bregman Alvarez Correa Gurriel Tucker that's about as good a one through seven as he's going to face this year an all-star and he just shut him down and so I don't want to give us too much credit for being like oh he's going to shut down the Astros so we're going to start him this was purely (laughs) it was a two-start thing right volume Our, our other choices were not great choices and, and we decided that the volume was worth the gamble that he he put it together, and he did. Of course, now that we've said this, 
He pitches again. <laughs> we're, we are recording this on Friday afternoon. He pitches again. Is it tomorrow or Sunday? That outing, I believe, was Monday, so it's probably Saturday. Saturday. He So he faces the A's in Oakland. That was the other piece of this, is the A's, while they're a decent team, have not been great, and that park is a great park to pitch in. So he's got the A's in Oakland next. That was the other piece of it. Now that we've talked about this, this is going to air Monday morning, and everyone's <laughs> going to be like, yeah, you guys thought Corbin's start was bad. <laughs> Look what Mize did against Oakland. So, right, and of course, that's the way it worked out, because you know when we were talking about it, I was looking, I was like, all right. The Houston start's probably going to be ugly, but if he's going to pitch well this year, he's definitely going to have a good outing against Oakland. So that's exactly how this absolutely will break down is he's going to get lit up. But the exact opposite. Not. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other pitchers that we've, we've talked a little bit about, Weaver and Peralta. Any thoughts on those guys? Anything you want to bring up? Yeah, I'll be quick. You know, Weaver, we talked about him in the past and I we did a post ADP 300 guys that we liked. And I mentioned how hard it was to find pitchers that late, because as you know, I like to get my pitchers a lot earlier than pick 300. And one of the ones I mentioned was Weaver was Luke Weaver of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And this is not a victory lot. Uh, This is actually a stay away segment because even though he's walked nobody so far, which is great for him, just one walk in 12 and two thirds innings pitch. I think he's really been pretty lucky. The expected ERA is up around four and a half, which is right around where it was last year. And when I talked about him earlier during the offseason, I referenced how he talked about how he needs his slider and that his slider really helps out his other two pitches. He has not thrown one slider this year. Instead, he's thrown almost all four seamers in changeups with an average exit velocity against of 92.4. So I really just think it's a matter of time until Weaver comes crashing back down to earth, unless he starts sprinkling in that slider a little bit more often. So don't be, you know, persuaded by the success in this limited sample. And then then Peralta, I really like Peralta. He was somebody we talked about with Alex. He's always had great stuff, right? It was just, can he throw enough of a diverse amount of pitches to really get through the lineup multiple times. And he's been pretty great so far. What's weird is that he would throw the fastball so much, you know, like 70, 75% of the time. And then the second pitch to kind of mix it up a little bit was that curveball. And he's actually not throwing that curveball at all. He's, he's cut down the fastball usage to 52%, but it's that slider now that's, that he's using really as a secondary pitch. And it's really just those two pitches that he's using. So he's like still a two pitch pitcher. It's just his second offering is much better. And it's really allowing that elite fastball to play up. And it's hard to argue with the numbers so far. I mean, that slider, he's thrown it 92 times. So it's not a massive sample, but through those 92 times, it's got an expected batting average of 066. So it's definitely a serviceable second pitch. He's looked great up until this point. It's just, if he doesn't get that third pitch, I would continue to not expect him to go through the lineup again. Does that curveball come back? Is that sort of the natural next step here? You would think so, right? Because he's only pitched into the sixth inning once in his three outings. And I'm thinking, okay, so those first two, he probably didn't face that many batters individually. So maybe he's saving it more for third time through the order. That's when he wants to start sprinkling in the curveball. And that's why we've barely seen it. But I don't know. Got it. Got it. So let's let's jump to some hitters. A bunch of guys, again, that we've talked about. You know, one of the guys I, I got invested in across multiple teams. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on him in the early going is Marcus Simeon. Yeah, you and I are, are, are pretty big on Marcus Simeon. So the good news is that as much as he struggled in terms of batting average, you look at it and you know even his on base, he's, he's really come into his own in terms of plate discipline and taking walks over the last few seasons. Doesn't look that great. The good news is that neither does Kevin Biggio's. Kevin does have a higher OBP at the moment. You know, he's, he's an awesome guy to get walks, but that tells me that when Springer comes back, Semyon is probably going to just bump down to number two in the lineup, which is right where we want him. And that's why you and I liked him so much heading into the season. So I, I actually think he's going to be fine. I, I did not draft him thinking I'm drafting a superstar. I drafted him thinking I'm drafting a guy who is going to get on base a ton, is going to gain that second base eligibility and probably score 100 runs hitting in this lineup. And I haven't seen enough to this point to make me think I made a bad decision. And interestingly enough, sprint speed in the 93rd percentile, and he does already have two stolen bases this year. I think those came on like the first three games of the year. I could be wrong on that. If so, we should tamper our expectations a little bit. But if he becomes more of a stolen base threat than he was, like if he becomes a 15 to 20 stolen base guy as opposed to 10 to 12, I like him even more. So despite the lackluster numbers so far, I kind of like what, we, what we're seeing. Yeah, I'm with you in terms of being pretty happy, actually, all things considered. He has a 229 BAPIP right now. 
Uh, he's never been a super high BAPIP guy, but he's not a super low BAPIP guy either. And so I, I suspect that will correct. And he's also had some really good batted ball data. Talked a little bit on here about the fact that the ball is bouncier or seems to be bouncier. And so we're getting higher exit velocities than we have in the past. But his average exit velocity so far this year is 91.4. Coming into this year, he had never had a season of over 88.9. His max exit velocity of 109.5 is a new career high. Again, sort of what we expect. His hard hit rate, which had never been over 37% in his career, is at 51.3%. His barrel rate would be a career high. If you look at his percentiles, his average exit velocity is in the 72nd, max exit velocity 76th, hard hit 83rd. Last year, those numbers were 12, 49, and 9. So huge jumps. Even if you go back to 2019, they were 41, 58, and 43. So he is making big, big strides in how hard he's hitting the ball relative to his his peers. And he's just not getting the results yet. Those results will follow, I think. So I'm still, I'm very happy with Simeon where I've got him. You know, sometimes when a guy's struggling, it's like you take him out of your lineup and use someone else until they find themselves. I'm not even doing that with him. He's in my lineup. I think he's just getting some bad luck. His launch angle is a little wonky right now. It is 23.5, which is high for him right? It's that he's hitting way too many fly balls, but he's also getting some weird numbers where like, he's got like a, he's got a 12.8% line drive rate. Line drive rate is a particularly fickle number. And so looking at a 62 plate appearance sample of line drive rate is, is sort of a waste, except to say that there's no way it's going to stay that low. And I think as he starts to trade more fly balls for line drives, I think some of that home run power might dry up a little bit, not, not, not dry up like he's going to be a 10 home run guy instead of a 25 home run guy, but like maybe not continue the pace he's on right now with the four he's already hit. But I think that he's going to get better overall results when that happens. And I'm, I'm still in. Now that I'm looking at his, his sort of surface numbers, I'm wondering if I should be buying. I wonder if I should be looking for opportunities to add him. I might go do that. I would, especially since, I mean, he, he must already have the second base eligibility by now. And I know I keep harping on that, but that's a position that's been a weakness for me in drafts i didn't always plan it out as well as i should have so Mm -hmm. he's definitely a target for me what about paul goldschmidt yeah so goldschmidt's been an interesting one because his stack ass numbers so far are like second only to my man wilson ramos um i think he's he's actually been pretty awesome and you know his teammate is is probably a big reason for that nolan arenado who we thought leaving cores would maybe have a slow start. Or at least that's what I thought. I thought Arenado's a stud. He's going to hit, but maybe to start, he gets off to a little bit of a slow start. He's been awesome. And if you look at Goldschmidt's numbers across the board, I mean, his average exit velocity is 96 miles an hour to this point. So, you know, a hard hit percentage of 67.6. So uh, again, you know, it's a small sample size, but when it's a player that we know is a stud in Paul Goldschmidt, you look at the 234 average and just one home run and you kind of shrug your shoulders and roll your eyes because he's a stud and he's going to continue to perform like a stud. That average exit velocity, 97th percentile, hard hit, 99th percentile, which again, I get it. It's a small sample, but man, Goldschmidt seems like the optimal buy low right now if you need first base help. Yeah, I think the only thing that seems a little weird to me with him is one of the things I was excited about with him last year was he made big strides in his plate discipline in terms of bringing down his chase rate. His chase rate had jumped in 2019 when he had a little bit of a down year, and in 2020, it was it was way back down. It's now up even higher than it was before. Small sample, lots of caveats to that. It's something I'm watching. He's not swinging at pitches in the zone more. And his contact rates haven't suffered. Like, And as you said, his quality of contact has been great. He's just chasing a bunch more. And I'm not really sure. I'm just keeping an eye on it. It's a small number right now. I expect that'll go down. That would be the one cause for concern, though, is if he continues to chase at a high rate, at some point, you got to wonder what's what's going on with that. It makes you wonder if the, the hard contact will continue. <laughs> Right, because at some level you can only do one of those two things. I mean, unless you're Vlad Guerrero Senior, <laughs> you can't. You, you usually cannot chase a ton and get regular hard contact. Right, it's it's hard to do both. So I think one of those things is going to move. I just, again, another guy. I, I agree with you. I'd be buying low. I think it's the right move, but I'm watching that chase rate. I think I think it'll level off. I mean, you look at his walk rate so far; it's just six percent. This is a guy who's typically a walk beast. So. You know, assuming that begins to level off, he starts realizing, okay, maybe I shouldn't be swinging at pitches in the dirt or at my eyes. 
I think that'll that'll level off, and and we'll just have a, a tip. Like I'm not telling our our listeners that I think Goldschmidt's you know about to hit 320 with 40 homers, but he's been consistently a very good fantasy player for like a decade almost like he's he's bankable i'm in yeah i'm with you you got a couple other bats you mentioned here carlos correa anthony santander do you want to talk about either of those guys yeah i'll take the loss on santander and and again this isn't like the opposite of a victory lap i still i'm still holding out hope for santander it's just a couple of weeks here but there are some concerning signs the only good news really is the max exit velocity, but like we've talked about so much in the past, that's up around the board for pretty much everyone. And and his this year is not even his own career high. He hit a ball 111 miles an hour this year. That's his max for the season. His career is 113, but otherwise he struck out a ton, which is like one of the things we, we don't want from Santander. I mean, you don't want that from anybody, but especially from him, that's that was supposed to be one of his strengths. He's striking out almost 30% of the time, and he's otherwise been very pedestrian. I think he might be selling out for power. I'm not sure in the early going. I mean, his strikeouts are way up and so is his average exit velocity, but his expected batting average is just 241. So maybe he's trying really hard to square stuff up. And perhaps the most concerning thing about all this is the quality of pitching that he's faced. I mean, he, he's faced Garrett Cole. So sure, you get a you get a pass there. I mean, he hit a home run off Jamison Tyone, but otherwise he's faced Seattle and Boston pitching. So it's really not that great of stuff. Like Eduardo Rodriguez, Savaldi, they're off to good starts. Hulk looked great in his outing, not to bring him up again, but you're talking about two rotations that aren't even that great. He's going to face a lot better pitching as the season goes on. So the fact that his strikeout rate's 30% and he's not really hitting that well, I, I think it's pretty concerning for a player that lacks the track record. Yeah, I think that's totally fair on him. I still think he's going to bounce back. I'm not sure I'm very confident in that assessment. <laughs> He's definitely going to get the burn. He's going to get plenty of opportunities to do so. So let's start to jump into some of these. Would you rather? Would you drop? What would you do? And these are cases where you've got a guy who was more established off to maybe not a great start and a guy who is less established off to a good start in a standard five by five league. Would you drop the established guy for the, the startup? Let's call him. So first one in the outfield couple of AL East outfielders. Would you drop Clint Frazier for Cedric Mullins? So I think this is an interesting one. In most leagues, Cedric Mullins is probably already scooped up. And if he was a free agent, I'm trying to add him. I just don't know if Clint Frazier is the person I want to drop to get him. I'm hoping there's somebody on my team that I could drop in place of Clint Frazier. Now, Frazier so far has obviously been disappointing, but what's been, he's, he's hitting a ton of ground balls and he's not hitting the ball very hard, which if we know anything about Clint Frazier, that is not going to be the case for him. So like, unless you think that that's who he is now, which there's no reason to think that then I'm, I'm holding on to my, to my Clint Frazier. I think Clint Frazier has a, has a higher ceiling than Cedric Mullins does with that said, Cedric Mullins has been pretty awesome. Like if, if I need stolen bases and I know Frazier is maybe going to max out at like 12, Maybe I am picking up Cedric Mullins. He's hit the ball very hard for a guy who's 5'8". You know, not to not to pick on size, but I mean, he, he's been a pleasant surprise. Nice lefty, good ballpark, very fast, going to offer you stolen bases. So I temper my expectations. He's not obviously as good as he's been. He's not going to hit 388 for the rest of the season. But I think he's going to be pretty solid batting on top of that lineup. And if, if your patience is running thin with Clint Frazier, you know, maybe it's a league that doesn't reward walks as much. I'd, sure, I'd, I'd consider dropping Frazier for Mullins. So let's jump from the outfield to corner infield. CJ Crone, all sorts of hype going into cores. Oh, my God. Jimer Candelario had that great year last year, but it didn't really start him to do much to his, his draft value. Would you drop Crone for Candelario? So to be honest, I don't have any interest in Candelario, but I, I this drives me crazy. We have taken cores way too far, I think. Like where somebody... With CJ Crone's track, like it's a fine track record, but we all come out with these hot takes that like, oh, because he's hit 35, 30 homers before, that means all of a sudden he's gonna be like a fifty home run hitter in Colorado. Maybe he still ends up being that. Like, how's that worked out for you so far? And the people that then abandoned Nolan Arenado because he's leaving cores, how's that working out so far? You know what I mean? Like, it, I'm not, I'm not trying to like dab on these people and 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 take a victory lap again two weeks into the season, but we're putting too much stock in it. So to answer your question, I'll be quick. No, I'm going to hold on to Cedar Crone. I still want to see what he can do in cores, but man, so far I'm just looking at this, this cores narrative and thinking like, I don't know. Sometimes guys are just good hitters that play at cores. And sometimes guys are just not that great in cores 
isn't going to fix them. Yeah, I think that's fair on Crone. I think that he does have a lot of power. And I actually, like, I just wanted him to get signed this offseason because I've been a fan of his for a while. So I, I wasn't even necessarily waiting on cores for him. I'm surprised at how much he struggled. I do think he'll end up being pretty solid. Candelario was a guy who I was down on going into the season, but like he sort of picked up right where he left off. Like his walk rate's up a little, his strikeout rate is down a little. He was a high BAPIP guy last year. It's back up there again. He's chasing a little bit more, but not a lot. His contact rates are very similar. He's getting challenged in the zone a little bit more, but again, not a ton more. Like there's just, it looks so much like last year. And last year felt so unsustainable to me. I'm starting to wonder like, okay, the 60 game sample, he played 52 games at 206 plate appearances. That doesn't seem sustainable to me. Well, now he's at 65 games and 263 plate appearances. That's not a whole lot more, but we are inching towards the point where if you look at last year and this year combined, he's starting to establish something. And I don't know. I, I think I don't really love either of these guys right now. I think I would rather have Crone between these two just because I think he's a better hitter. But Candelario is starting to make me question some things. So yeah, he's growing on me. If he's your Anthony Rendon replacement, that's fine. I don't know if yeah. I feel comfortable starting him the rest of the year. Yeah. All right. Let's go to the middle infield or sort of middle infield. Keston Hira. I guess he's technically a corner infielder now, although he's been playing some middle infield again with Colton Wong hurt. He was about as hot a prospect as you can get for a middle infield bat a couple of years ago. Last year was a disaster. This year has not been good. In the meantime, Jazz Chisholm was a popular prospect for middle infielder, but also a guy who you heard a lot of like, he's super toolsy, but we'll see if he's ever actually going to become a baseball player. He kind of looks like a baseball player. <laughs> so would you drop Hira to add Chisholm? Whew. This is this is a kind of a hard one because I think it takes real guts to drop. Like the other guys you took kind of late, you know, we're talking like, I don't know, 15th, 16th round. Keston Hero was, he was gone in the, after the first 10 rounds in, in most drafts. So that, that takes some guts, but why not? I guess is my question. What has Hero proven at the major league level that Chisholm hasn't yet? You know what I mean? Like, like other than just playing for more games, like he's been awful this year and you know I, I spend a lot of time hyping up jazz chisholm he's still only hitting 258 but here has been so bad that if i look at him so far and i say you know what he's he has not had a, a k rate under 30 percent and this year it's at a high of 38 percent since he's come into the league he looks like he hasn't fixed anything he just looks bad again i mean avisel garcia is hitting the cover off the ball you know who knows what happens when kane comes back and travis shaw's hitting like could Hira find himself out of a job if he continues to hit this poorly so i i guess i would i guess i would i mean it definitely feels like a massive just gut reaction based on the first couple of weeks of the season but I'm a believer in jazz, so I don't see a reason why I wouldn't make this move. I don't know if he is going to be out of a job as in benched, but I think there is a real chance he spends some time in AAA. Like he has some stuff to figure out and, and I'm not enough of a coach and I don't know him well enough to know if like he just has to figure it out against major league hitting and sending him to AAA is a waste or if he's the kind of guy who like send him down, let him just focus on getting his swing right, let him get some confidence back. But man, it looks like he needs to work on some stuff. Chisholm, I was low on him, but like, man, he's he's striking out a decent amount, but you knew that was going to happen. He was going to have strikeout issues. He struck out 25% of the time in double A in Miami in 2019. That was after coming over from Arizona where he struck out 34% of the time in double A. It's like he was going to strike out. It was almost unavoidable, but he's walking almost 18% of the time too. And he's been very patient. I think I had this sense of him as like a free swinger because of that strikeout rate and, and would have been good, but not great walk rates. And sometimes in the minors, you can get away with walk rates by just letting guys walk you. Uh, you can't do that in the majors, at least not at the same level. And man, he's he seems to be patient. He seems to have a good eye. He is picking out his pitches and he is crushing the ball. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's not to like. Yeah, it's a it's a tough it's a tough call. I mean, I, yeah. especially these two. But I, he is he's older than Juan Soto. I think he might be a little bit more of a baseball player than a lot of us thought heading into the season. And that and that includes myself. I thought he was a lot more raw, going to strike out like you know, Keston Hero level. And so yeah. far, how can you argue with the results? 
Yeah, I think this may be a case where the lack of a minor league season last year really made a big difference in perception rather than development. Absolutely. He spent a bunch of time at the alternate site, and it was impressive enough that they brought him up and gave him you know, 50 plate appearances, 60 plate appearances last year, but a cup of coffee last year in the midst of a pennant race because they were fighting for a playoff spot. My guess is that he was doing some stuff at the alt site last year that they were just like, he is, he's developing, he's advancing, he's showing real growth and we just never saw it. And now we're seeing it. So let's do one more of these. Take a look at Marco Gonzalez for Anthony Disclafini. Tony Disco. I feel like I've been hearing for years that he was going to break out. Now he's gotten us a good first half of April. You ready to give up on Marco for him? So I, I know you're a fan of, of Marco. I'm not just because I, I've, you'll very rarely see me draft guys that don't get strikeouts. I'm, I'm never the guy that owns Kyle Hendricks. I'm never the guy that gets your Marco Gonzalez. So if I ended up with him, if I invested a pick in him, you know, within the first 20 rounds or whatever it might be, I'm not ready to drop him for somebody who I think has the same ceiling as him. With that said, I'm I'm concerned. I'm, I'm I was relieved to hear you say you know the last four innings of his last start actually looked pretty good, and and that definitely caught my attention. It's like okay, hopefully things are beginning to settle down because we joke about how he's not exciting, but the reason why he's not exciting is because he doesn't really have swing and miss stuff. And so you're depending a lot on generating soft contact on your field coming through for you. And I feel like that's, that's relying on stuff that can be kind of volatile and not everybody is Kyle Hendricks. And if that's just finally caught up to him, then, then what is to like about him? So I wouldn't, but I don't like either. So in a shallow league or in a redraft league, you have very little to lose here. Ride the hot hand. If that's what you want to do, if there's something you see in Disclafini that you like better, fine. Go for it. Because the reality is, as you said, Marco is, he is super solid. At least he has been, right? This year has been bad, but he is reliable. He is solid. He is also not going to carry your pitching staff. And so I'm sort of with you. I think the the caveat I will give is there are a couple scenarios where Marco is undervalued. One of those is quality start leagues. He throws a lot of innings. He has been pretty consistently reliable to get you those quality starts. The other is in auto new head-to-head leagues where you have a limit on the number of of games started for your starting pitchers. Because he goes deeper into games, he outpunches his weight, right? He's better in those formats. And so there's a couple of cases where I'm more inclined to just wait on him where I think Disclafini is not going to carry as much value. But in general, yeah, I just... This is one where... Neither of them have a ton of long-term value, so do what you want. <laughs> yeah, it's really unexciting. Let's jump on to your auto new question of the day, which is going to be a little bit of an extension of the conversation we've been having, I think. Yeah, it fits right in. And Chad, right before I read, I just want to give you a quick update on something we were talking about earlier. Jake Kaplan of The Athletic just tweeted out, now he's a Houston Astros beat writer for The Athletic, that Dusty Baker said it's leaning that way, that the five players who are out because of health and safety protocols are going to miss this entire five-game road trip. So that not only includes this weekend, but also Tuesday and Wednesday's games against Colorado. So brutal. Yeah, that's that's rough. (sighs) Anyway, new question of the day. Uh, So, Chad, we're just a few weeks into the season, but we've already been analyzing guys up and down. We're, we're, We're here to examine and have some takes so what's one player that kind of fits into this mold somebody who's worth three dollars or less in ot new that is really sticking out to you as like incredible value to this point in the season and do you expect it to continue yeah so to start off with and do a little definition on on saying worth three dollars i'm looking at average salaries look more like where they cost three dollars so I looked at a bunch of guys who are under $3 in average salary, and I looked for guys who have a relatively high points per game or points burning pitch in Fangraph's points. Maybe it's just because we're early in the season, right? And, and you're getting a lot of small samples, but there's still a lot of names that are are inexpensive and doing well. There's a bunch of breakout relievers or, or relievers who I think in some cases may have just been undervalued. Victor Gonzalez, Scott Barlow, Lucas Sims, Jake McGee, Tyler Matzek, Kendall Graveman, Sean Newcomb, Jacob Brents. Like there's a long list of relievers who are putting up good numbers for little cost. There's a bunch of catchers. Like I, I'm not sure what's going on with the catcher position, but we've seen a resurgence from, from Gary Sanchez and Wilson Contreras who are not inexpensive, obviously. But then at the lower end, like, Jonah Heim in limited time has been good. 
Max Stassi before he got hurt. Carson Kelly has been fantastic. Roberto Perez has looked really good. Kyle Higashioka, if you could pair him with Sanchez, he's been great. Jacob Stallings has been excellent. So, so there, I feel like there's just like giant pile of catchers. I don't know how many of them are, are really going to continue that. We'll get back to that in a minute. We'll talk about some of the guys I would actually want to bet on in the future, but there's been a bunch. And then around the rest of the diamond, Chris Owings, it's a shame he got hurt, but he was doing really well in, in Colorado. Evan Longoria has been resurgent. There's some guys who I don't know that I would ever use, but Charlie Culberson and Adam Frazier have both been excellent. Jed Lowry, get him back in Oakland and he hits again, I suppose, seems to be the, the story with him. Robbie Grossman's been walking a ton. There's been a lot of talk about Zach McKinstry. We've talked about Jazz Chisholm, Tyler Naquin, obviously, with the five home runs in a matter of days. <laughs> Renato Nunez, he didn't make the Tigers, and he's only there because Miggy got hurt, and he's been really good. And then among starting pitchers, you know, we talked about Disclafini, but there's a bunch of other names of guys who have, you know, it's only a couple stars, but like Wade Miley has been incredible. Austin Gomber's been good. Joe Ross, Jeff Hoffman, Aaron Sanchez, Alex Cobb, Jacob Junis. Before he got hurt, Johnny Cueto looked like the old Johnny Cueto. So there's a ton of names out there. As I start to look at guys who I think I might want to make a bet on. So first of all, my my strategy on relievers in general in Auto New is to churn through cheap relievers until I find guys who stick. I will sometimes pay a little bit for an elite guy, but it's it's not really my preferred approach. And so some of these guys, like Victor Gonzalez and Tyler Matzek, who I mentioned before, Scott Barlow, like they're already on some of my teams. Kendall Graveman is a guy I would look really closely at. He he's looked really good so far. He seems to at least for now be the closer in Seattle. Brad Boxberger, name I feel like I haven't brought up in years. And like it was like five or six years ago, he had one really, really good season. And he's now had three good appearances or four good appearances or something this year. His fastball velocity in his career has been under 93 every year, except that one great year. And it's back to 93.9 or something this year. It would be a new career high if he maintains it. I haven't looked a whole lot deeper than that, but he's a guy worth looking at. And he's a guy that who knows? I mean, if he can refine the stuff he had before, so this is where I'm just I'm just churning through those relievers. I'm finding guys, if they break, you move on. And, and I think you can build a bullpen that way over the course of the season. For the starting pitchers, Jacob Junis with the the new pitch, and I'm trying to remember what the pitch was. The cutter. The cutter, right. Has looked really good. And he got sort of thrown to the wolves with the Jays yesterday and looked good. And so I'm I'm sort of I'm buying in on, on Jacob Junis. I think if you can still get him, he's still available in a lot of leagues. And if you can get him cheap, he, he's a really nice, really nice guy to, to bet on. Kohei Arihara, the Rangers pitcher who came over from Japan. When we had Alex fast on a couple episodes ago, he talked about this with Chris Flexen. He talked about the transition from foreign leagues into the domestic league and how much of a difference that can make and how it takes some getting used to an adjustment. Arihara is over four and a half points per inning pitched as a starting pitcher, which in auto new is really valuable. It's not Jacob DeGrom valuable, but it's very good. And if that's his, I haven't adjusted yet performance, that's pretty intriguing to me. So I'm, I'm keeping a close eye on him. He's another guy who I think I might, I haven't made any moves for him yet, but I, I might. And then Alex Cobb and Joe Ross are two guys who a ton of talent have flashed great stuff before and right now look really good. I don't know how long it lasts with either of them. There are worse bets you could take on somebody putting together the talent and, and having a, a really solid season. In terms of position players, I mentioned a whole list of catchers. I think if Jonah Heim ends up getting more playing time in Texas, he could be really good. And so I'm intrigued by him. Carson Kelly is the one I would bet on right now because he's the one who has a job and he's performing well and he's got some prospect pedigree and he's been good in the past. And I don't think there's anything really pushing him. Right now, maybe Dalton Varsha does at some point, but not right now. So I'm, I'm intrigued by him. In terms of other position players, the other name that sort of jumps out at me is Travis Shaw. I was really high on Travis Shaw going into last season. He came into last season having had this like horrendous year before, but saying he had figured something out, claiming he had issues with his swing, and it just never came together for him. Now it seems to have come together for him. So... The nice thing with Shaw is you're not betting on a breakout. 
You're not betting on a guy doing something he's never done before. You're not saying like, oh, maybe he discovered a new talent level. You're just betting on him being who he was before. So I guess, you know, I could say the same thing about Evan Longoria, right? Who is also sort of resurgent. Shaw. Oh, how about this? I was looking up how old Travis Shaw is. Happy birthday, Travis Shaw. Hey. He turned he turned 31 today. While we're recording, he turned 31. <laughs> so <laughs> the point of that is not to celebrate his birthday, but like Longoria is 35, right? And so Longoria finding it for a couple weeks is very different than him finding it for a whole season. Shaw is in or just barely out of his prime. And so the idea that Travis Shaw may just sort of have had a couple of down years and be back to who he was is pretty appealing to me. And I think right now, like this is a list of guys who cost less than $3. Go spend $3 on Travis Shaw. It's not going to hurt you. And you may get yourself a third baseman who who can provide you a lot of value. Yeah, Shaw's definitely interesting to me, not only obviously not new for how cheap he would be, but just in general. I I, I think you could reasonably roster Travis Shaw in a, in a categories 12-team league. I think he's been that good, and I, I really like that Milwaukee lineup. Somebody you mentioned earlier, Chad, that I, I just wanted to touch on quickly, because I did end up getting him for $3, was Jacob Junis. And you brought up the, the cutter which is definitely making a difference for him so far. And and you look at the numbers, you know, 31% CSW would be a career high. The swing strike rate would definitely be a career high up around 12.4, which is pretty solid. You know, that's fine. What sticks out to me, though, is he hasn't even worked in that slider yet. I mean, the slider was Jacob Junis's bread and butter, and I should use that term very loosely because it's not like he was a good pitcher, but the slider was a good pitch. You look in 2018, he threw the slider over 950 times. It generated an expected batting average of 177. The following year, he threw it another 850 times with an expected batting average of 148. That's a good pitch. And he has, he has he's throwing it 0.6% of the time. He's thrown it one time so far through these two outings. So I think he actually has the upside to get even better. Yeah, it's uh, if that slider was his bread and butter, it was like stale bread and there was some <laughs> the butter was getting a little old but he seems to have have figured something out and and it that cutter may be what's doing it and yeah i'm 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 all in on him right now i think i shouldn't have let you get him for three dollars that was my <laughs> mistake <laughs> i was very excited i did not expect to get him I, when it's when i got the email that i did I, it was a it was a happy day happy day all right well i think we've covered a lot. A lot of names out there, especially given how early in the season it is. Thank you all for listening. As a reminder, you can subscribe to us everywhere podcasts are subscribable. Leave us ratings and reviews. Send us feedback. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Keep or Cut. That's cut with a K at Keep or Cut. You can find me on Twitter at Chad Young. Pete is available at Pete B Baseball. And we, like I said, would love to hear from you. Happy to answer your questions. Let us know what you want to hear on the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.